0: Well, we're working through this uh, series in the book of Psalms, and uh, it's interesting. I think as uh, Doug and James and I have s- sat down and talked about this early on, uh, talked about trying to you know, pick Psalms and put things in a nice, predictable order, and it's hard to do that with the Psalms. It's hard to thematically organize them because many of the Psalms tend to rotate through a number of issues that all of us wrestle with and deal with in life. And so, I'm on Psalm 3. Am I out of order? I am completely out of order, okay? But I'm in order with my own preaching, and that is I did chapters 1 and 2, and I'm on chapter 3, okay? But it's fascinating because I've been thinking about this in terms of how do you structure a series in a book like this, and obviously we just kind of gave up and said, pick a Psalm that is expressing something that you believe God wants you to share with the church family. And then we... Uh, kind of talk to each other, make sure we're not preaching on the same psalm. Um, They're hard to categorize because they're about real life. They're about the circumstances that come and go with the ebb and flow of life in a fallen world. Uh, They are deeply emotional in terms of their content, and you're noticing that as we work our way through them. They are the cry of people's hearts to God. They are mostly prayers expressed Godward that give vent to this real sense of emotion that we as human beings experience. And you'll read certain ones at certain times, and you'll say, that is spot on with where I am in my life at this time. The Psalms are not, however, emotions without restrictions. We live in in an age where people kind of in our our unguardedness and our wanting to be free and expressive, uh, we live in an age where people love to vent, I'm gonna call a friend and say, you know what, I just need to vent. Honestly, venting has never accomplished anything righteous. Okay, it may relieve a person a little bit, but it never really changes anything. And so the Psalms are not the psalmist simply venting, kind of getting off his chest. It is the psalmist reflecting on his life circumstance in relationship to God, in relationship to how those circumstances circumstances have provoked feelings with him that he may or may not understand, that he may or may not like, but he's trying to see them oriented from a Godward perspective. In other words, we usually face circumstances, and I have a knee-jerk response to much of life. I am a very spontaneous person. Uh, To my wife's dismay, often, I am spontaneous. I, I tend to react to things verbally. I process out loud. Um... And the psalmist is kind of doing that, but he's always doing it with this Godward perspective. He's bringing God into the view, onto you know, the screen of his life. He's never seeing his life apart from God. Now, there are times that he will talk about seeing it without God. Psalm 73 becomes a classic example. Beginning of that psalm, full of frustration, emotion, difficulty, struggle, fight. But then God comes into the picture. Okay, so as we work through these psalms, we're encouraging you to read through the psalms in, in the hope that you will gain a Godward perspective in the midst of the circumstances that kind of randomly and yet predictably appear and reappear in our experience as human beings. In this psalm, we are taught to pray and process a struggle that David is dealing with, but it's a struggle that he deals with in light of who God is. And seeing your struggle with God in the picture is what makes all the difference. I've entitled this sermon, Confident. Confident. I believe the most common biblical command, and I still haven't researched this yet, I've probably mentioned this to you before, I believe the most common biblical command is, do not fear. Do not fear. Do not be afraid. And that command, I believe, is rehearsed frequently in Scripture because I have a tendency to hit the panic button when my life falls apart. When struggles come, I don't have an increase of confidence. I tend to have a decrease in confidence and a fight calling back towards God to regain focus and perspective. And in this psalm, you, you find out at the beginning of it that it is a psalm of David when he fled from his son Absalom. Now, if you've studied the Psalms for very long, you know that those inscriptions at the beginning are not things that the editor of the NIV or the New Living Translation added in. They are part of the original text. Okay, and often in Hebrew, that's verse one in the Hebrew Bible. Okay, in our Bibles, it's a, kind of a, 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 a title for the Psalm, and then it leads you into it with a little bit of background. Okay, the background in this Psalm is that Absalom, the son of King David has kind of gotten together a mutiny. If you go back to the book of Samuel, 2 Samuel, I believe it's chapter 15, you find that Absalom has kind of won the hearts of the people. He was a handsome young man. He was a good alternative to the aging king. And so he won the hearts of the people through counsel that benefited them in an unrealistic way, and he was kind of buying them over. Does that sound familiar? Kind of what Absalom was doing, trying to win favor with people by pouring out blessings on them without his father really knowing what was going on. And then Absalom calls for a coup. His intent and aim is clearly stated. I will kill my father. David's response to that is very interesting. I want you to remember this now, and I'll bring it up at the end of this discussion. All right, David's response is, we, meaning he and his personal bodyguard, need to flee the city because when Absalom comes, he will not only kill us, but he will put the city to the sword. Okay, so if you wonder why King David left, it's because Absalom had also won the heart of the army, the fighting men, and was coming with them to put David's loyal people to death. Okay, so that gives you a little bit of a background of this psalm. It's in that circumstance that David, a father who loves his son. You'll find this out later. Eventually, this coup is put down. Absalom is killed in the battle that ensues. And David, you'll find that David goes into this weeping before God. He cries out, my son, Absalom, my son. He's not happy about the destruction of his son. He's happy for the people of God that they have been saved. So it's not, it's, it's a twisted picture. Because the son wants dad dead so that he can come to the throne. And it's kind of like, that is so... Wrong. And yet, David has this affection and love for his son that puts him in this incredible difficulty that, at some level, shakes the confidence of David. And here's how he says it in verse 1 He says, Oh Lord. And notice this this is the covenant name of God, this is Yahweh, the covenant maker with his people Israel who David is now crying out to, O oh Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. So this is the horns of dilemma that David finds himself cast upon. He finds a, a, a large, sizable opposition. His son has declared himself king and sent his army to kill him. Serious life and death situation. An assault on David. But then there is this subtle and yet strong accusation against God himself. And David rehearses it for you so that you know what he's experiencing, what he's feeling in his raw emotions. Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. His God is not reliable, faithful, worthy of trust. So it's under that threat, that heavy accusation that David begins to write this psalm. And what I love is, He starts out with this very honest description of what he feels. It reminds me of the psalm where it says, David talks about trouble, and he says, God, my my trouble is like a cup full, and I am pouring that trouble out before you. Nothing held back. A very transparent and honest plea from his heart to God, and an honest admission that many are saying, you are not trustworthy, but I don't buy it. And the psalm is the rest of David's response to this difficult circumstance. Now, here's what's true about fear. Because I think if you were to say, what is the primary emotion that David was wrestling with here? It's one that women will immediately acknowledge. And it's one that men struggle with acknowledging and owning. And saying, you know what? Yeah, there are times that I battle with that. Fear. Fear. Fear has two effects on people. Fear can through adrenaline make you like a superman i remember when i was a kid and i've probably told you this story before i was painting the roof of a two-story house and i was at the peak of the roof a friend of mine was holding the ladder on the shed dormer down at the roof of the first level so i'm about 18 feet away from him and he says hey you know we got done painting this roof with the ladders chained at the top and we're working our way across and everything's good paint the first section move the ladder paint the next section move the ladder eventually you run out of roof and we had come to the point where we ran out of roof. So my friend Jay Koffel, who now I know wasn't my friend, said, hey, if uh, you climb up that ladder, I'll stand on the lower shed roof and I'll hold it up. You climb-. I was probably all of 100 pounds at that time. you just climb up there? I can hold it? No fear. So me, my impetuous side, okay, I climbed up that ladder. I start painting. I am not 30 seconds into the painting job. And all of a sudden, my friend Jay says, uh, I can't hold it. I'm like, I look down this way. I'm at the peak of a two-story with an exposed basement. I'm about 25 feet, 30 feet up. Tim Matthews knows the feeling. I I dread, fear. Now all I can tell you is this: I remember landing, standing beside Jay Koffel on the shed dormer roof, from the peak to where he was. That's all I remember. How did I get there? Don't know. Fear took over blinded, gave superhuman ability, or God himself just simply protected me. But I know my response was beyond what I could do. Fear will have that that effect on people. Fear will also do this. Fear will keep you in bed in the morning. Fear can disable. It can debilitate. And it can render you very, very weak at times. I don't know what David's response here was. He's running out to the mountains to find safety, fleeing from the city of God where God had put him in as king. But I know what he's wrestling with. He's wrestling with fear. I don't know the exact impact on him. He's admitting many are saying. So there's a sense in which that assault of doubt, those fiery darts from the evil one were sticking and hurting and wounding and causing fear. I don't know what your response to fear is, but I know that this is a beautiful response to fear that we find in this psalm. Maybe you're here this morning, and for you, you've experienced fear that has led to a sense of anxiety or being deeply troubled. It's kind of put you off the tracks of life. It's kind of got you sitting on the sidelines of life, kind of marginalized. You're not part of the text of life. You're you're in the margins of the page. You're not a difference maker because fear has seized your heart. And what I want you to know is that David writes this psalm to tell you how to, I'm tempted to use the word cope, I'm also tempted to use the word defeat in the power of God, fear. And so I want you to kind of walk through the psalm with me looking at after verse two, you find the dilemma that David's in. You know why he's in that dilemma. His son is seeking to kill his life. David flees the city to protect the life of everybody else in the city. Bring it on to me. Let them alone. That's the posture that David finds himself in. Verse three then shakes this passage of scripture with the three-letter word, and it's the word but. In the middle Of all that David was facing. And all the fear that he very readily admits. And all the assault of doubt that he's facing. David can say, but you are. I want you to notice what he's doing. He is focusing not on what God does. He's focusing on who God is. Okay? Because what Satan always wants to do is to attack and assault the character of God you think of your greatest temptation, it will almost always be rooted in a doubt about the goodness and capacities of God himself. And David will spend this psalm not talking particularly about what God does, but about who God is in the life of his child, if you know him. And I hope this will help you. As I thought of our congregation. I thought of the different ages of of people, young people that are looking forward to the future, students that are going into college, looking at the debt that they're going to incur in that house, all that going to work out, thinking about when I get out of school, will I make enough money to pay the bills that I have, people that are thinking about having children and wondering, will I be up to the task? I remember when Rebecca was born, fear. Fear. That was validated for a few years. (laughs) Not really. But there was this, I, how am I going to do with this? Fear, doubt, self-doubt. Maybe you're coming towards the later years of your life and you've been assaulted by fear. Your fear is, do my life matter? As my capabilities fade, is that okay? So this morning, I don't know where your fear lies, because it, It kind of depends on how old you are. For an adolescent, am I pretty? I never ask that question, okay? (laughs) Jenna, I never ask myself that question. But those, am I accepted? What will happen if I stand for truth? You know what Satan says? You will look like a fool. And the world around you will press you to put you in the margins of life. And David has a response. When those fears assail, when your fear of standing for truth as pastors today, with the changes that are taking place in our culture, leadership in churches, there's a tendency to fear. What if? What if? And what will we do? It's time for confident people to stand. And my aim this morning is to help you from this text to see how David encouraged his heart to be confident in the God who had made him king of his people. So the first thought emerges. David says, but you, God. Now he's going to go into descriptions of God. They're metaphors. They're pictures to describe the place of God, the function of God, the person of God in David's life. So the first thing he says is this. He says, but you, O God, in the midst of this running out of the city, probably David is reflecting back on the circumstance now and writing what he experienced as he ran for fear of his life, the king, to protect the city. Runs for fear of his life. He says, but you, oh God, are a shield around me. I want you to think about that for a second. How many of you have ever seen someone with a shield around them? I started thinking, I said, that's weird. Right? How do you run in a tube? (laughs) How do you defend yourself in a tube? But it's the metaphor that David chooses. You're a shield about me. Now, it may be that David is differentiating between the two types of shields that could be used in battle. One, the small shield. You've seen Captain America, okay? That shield, okay? That shield that fights off everything that comes at you. It's got great power. You can can do all kinds of stuff with it. Beat people up with it. Sever heads with it. You can do all kinds of stuff with that shield, okay? It's It's an assault weapon. But there was also that that broad shield. If you've ever watched any of the Lord of the Rings movies, you know about those, those shields that they would two-hand over their head and, and march in a column. And that shield was never meant for the purpose of protecting you while retreating. Okay, that shield was raised as you went on the offense in response to the order of your commander. David says, as I reflect, God, on the trouble that is about me, around me, you're not simply above me. You're around me. You are, you are giving me confidence in the circumstance that I'm in. Isaiah, I think it's Isaiah 52, 12. Someone sent me this verse the first time I went to India. They, and the verse said this about God. He says, But you, God, are my, but you, God, are my rear guard. It reflected on that picture of God and how Isaiah would pick up on what the, what the psalmist is saying. God, you've got my... And we say to people, hey, I've got your back. That is not true. I say to my daughters, I'm there for you. But I'm here in New Jersey and you're in Missouri and Houston, Texas. May God help you. <laughs> I, I can't be, I cannot be what I want to be. But God can. And as David reflects on God, he says, you're not that little shield. You are a shield. I am surrounded. I thought of Alan, and Peggy Horton, when they'd go to China by the call of God. And they would always use this illustration to describe how they feel. They would say, when we go, we feel bulletproof, like force fielded, like untouchable until God's time. And that's what David is saying. Here's what's true. If you never go on the offensive in obedience to God, this blessing you will never need or experience that makes sense? You sit back and you take the easy approach to life. You don't speak up in the workplace for truth. As a young person, you don't stand for morality as all of my daughters have had to do in the assault that comes. If you never go on the offensive, you say, you know, my approach is I'm silent. I'm just, I'm a quiet witness. Well, at some point, you're not a witness because God saves by the word of truth. That is lived and then finds voice as the people of God live the life they should live. But as you begin to then step forward, he is a shield about you that is only experienced in the offensive mode of the Christian life. Where you are in obedience, stepping forward in the name of God. David says, when I do that, you're a shield about me. The second thing that then comes up. And so I, I would kind of summarize this first thought as David is responding to the assaults. And in Ephesians 6, it says, when you're being assaulted, when those verbal assaults, those volleys are coming against you, take up the shield of faith. And when you take it up, what do you do? With it, you quench the fiery darts of the evil one. And all those fiery doubts or fiery darts are literally doubts that assail the mind of the people of God. Questions about the goodness of God. And it's why the writer of Ephesians talks about this armor that we put on to protect And what did David find as he trusted God, when he moved forward in obedience to God? David learned a lesson very early in his life, didn't he? When he fought Goliath. When David went on the offensive, what happened? God showed up in a big way. And what was David? One word, not brash. There's no way you can read the story about David's battle with Goliath and say he was arrogant and cocky. What you would have to say is he was just confident. And he learned a lesson about God that at some level here, you got to say to yourself, he looks like he's kind of wavering a little bit. Right? Does that sound familiar? <laughs> if it doesn't, look in the mirror, okay? Look in the mirror and see, that's, a, that's me. I can have great victory, see God work. And some people might be watching me in my life experience and what is he worried about? God showed himself faithful in that area before, and you find yourself in the Psalms cycling back through lessons and experiences as God continues to impress upon your heart over and over and over in the psalms from many different perspectives who he is because who he is is the thing you need to remember the most and when you remember that you will become a christian who goes on the offense you will begin to seek to do things for god now if you were to say to me tim what do you think is the greatest killer of that kind of obedience that steps forward for god i would say it is a lack of confidence so people, when people don't share their faith in Christ, they say, well, I just don't know what I would say, right? Well, I don't know how they'll respond. We're expressing, in light of God's direction and call to obedience, we're expressing fear in the face of a call of obedience. And what God wants you to do is, I am a shield about you. Go, go. So David learns this first lesson, that he needs to follow the guidance of God by taking up the shield of faith. As one of my friends said to me years ago, he said, why is it that we are so prone to believe the doubt and doubt the truth? Why is it that the truth of God being a shield about us doesn't deeply motivate us and change us and make us confident believers? And so this is an area where I think all of us could say, you know what, there, I wrestle in that area. David's first response is, as you walk in obedience, God will be a shield about you. Second thing he says is, and I just love this statement. I'm reading from the New International Version. He says, but you, O Lord, bestow glory on me and lift up my head. You bestow glory on me. Some translations you might have, you have something like you are my glory. Okay, and what David is reflecting on is his relationship to God, his proximity, his intimacy with God gives him this protection of God in his life. The word he uses to describe that is glory. Now, the word glory is a hard word to get a grasp on. It means means weightiness or presence or the substantiveness of someone's presence. There's an air about them. When we talk about God, it is this Beautiful picture of the weightiness of the presence of God. And so in the Old Testament, it talks about the tabernacle or temple. It talks about the glory of God descended on Mount Sinai. And there is a sense of awe or woe. What does David say? By virtue of my intimacy with you on me, you are bestowing. You don't even want to say the word, do you? (laughs) because it is an amazing thought. You bestow glory on me. Now, a parent may say to their child, I may say to my daughter, you're half. okay? Pick up your head, okay? Act like a half. okay? may say something like that, and that, they, my daughter's probably like, okay, one day I'll be a raider, okay? <laughs> That'll be better, all right? There's this, that you're a child of God, You're a joint heir with Christ. Ephesians says you are already seated with Christ in the heavenly places. You understand what that means? He by virtue of owning you as his son or daughter has bestowed on you his presence. A sense of his protection. That's a child of God, be careful. They belong to God. David's his anointed one. What did David know? David knew that he did not ascend to the throne based on his own efforts. He was reluctant. He was unimpressed with the person he saw in the mirror. But God grabbed him and said, I want you to be king. And King Saul, when he saw, or Samuel, when, he, when, when Samuel the prophet saw David and his family, he didn't say, oh, look at David. He said, look at Eliab and look at this brother and look at this brother. But whoa, he's, he's got weightiness to him. Never would have picked David, but God did. And David is reflecting. You bestowed glory, position, salvation, redemption on me. And when you fear, be sure that your fear does not mitigate or negate the work of God in your heart. Because what Satan wants to do to you is kind of what he's trying to do to David in the assault, in the volleys. What can he say about David? He's a murderer. King He committed adultery. can't be forgiven. This is hard-hearted. What does David say? Totally undeserved favor. You bring glory on me. And folks, there are times as Christians that we need to go to God and say, "God, if you have not bestowed favor and glory on me, if you hadn't brought that, I would have none. I would be a person of no account. And folks, when that hits, you're a child of God not by performance, but by birth, by new birth into the family of God, it will change your life forever. And it will help you to fight against the fear that is such a prevalent part of the Christian experience in a fallen world. You bestow glory on me. And then David gives this nod to this idea. He says, you lift up my head. I thought of a, I thought of a guilty children, okay, or a child. child is just so disappointed at something in life, and they're just all oh, shucks, and they're then As as an adult, what do you, you want to encourage them? What do you do? Come on, your, look up, look up. Looking up is what winners do. Looking up is what the children of God do. In the assaults that come against you, know this: your child's God, you're God's child. You're a victor in Christ. And you didn't make a contribution to that. Your failures do not negate that truth. But Satan wants you to think, like to David, well, yeah, we remember your story. And what did they say? God will not help him. My guess is that David wrestled with that and thought, you know what? If the question is, do I deserve the help of God? The answer is no. No but do I have the help of God by grace? The answer is yes. I'm resisting drawing parallels to Christ because there are many here betrayed. You lift up my head. Psalm 35, 3, and this is a song, I'll read this verse for you. David says to God, God, brandish spear and javelin against those who pursue me. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. Well, there's a good verse to memorize. Brandish sword and spirit. God, come to my defense and say to my soul, God, say to me over and over and over again, I am your salvation. That's the message we need to hear repeatedly from the Spirit of God. He whispers in your ear, you are mine. And I thought of of as I went through this, Romans chapter 5 and verse 1, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace with God. You bestow glory on me. You lift up my head. You restore peace to me as I trust in you. And then I thought of Romans 5 and verse 5. And I put a note in my text here so I can read it to you. It says, and hope does not disappoint us. Hope is the word confidence. Confidence. Paul says, hope does not, does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who he has given to us. Some translations say it this way, the love of God by the Spirit is shed abroad. It floods the entire territory of your heart. And I think that's where David is here. As he reflects on the goodness of God, there is this sense in which God is speaking into his life, deliverance, salvation, salvation. And he says later, God, say to my soul, you are my salvation. I love that. It's the ministry of the Spirit of God in the heart of his children, in their distress, in their weakness of confidence or failure of confidence. He says, you are mine. And I am the lifter of your head. And then David gives us this powerful and glorious response. Look, can I, I want to just tell you something. About three weeks, ah, five weeks ago, I came into a circumstance where I was coming under a threat unrelated to church, totally. Okay, and it was it bothered me and troubled me deeply uh, because of what it could mean. And I was—I don't know how you are, but I'm like this. If I get something heavy comes on my plate for two or three days, I struggle, and then. By the grace of God, reorient. And I had a situation that came up, and I was, I was shaken. I was shaken by it. I was wrestling with a lack of confidence while knowing in the circumstance what I had done was absolutely correct. I had confidence that, I mean, if I had done something wrong, I had to, would have to go own it. Hadn't done something wrong. But it was, uh, what a pain in the, this would be. It was that kind of a, just don't want to have to deal with that. it. It would take so much time. It costs so much money. And I think it was the third night into that situation, I was, I was sleeping downstairs because our air conditioning was broke, okay? Not because my wife was mad at me, because the air conditioning was broke upstairs, okay? My wife can deal with that. I do not deal well with that air conditioning. So I'm sleeping downstairs. And I had that night the strangest sense experience where I was in bed and I was, I was gone. I was sleeping, and either I was dreaming or I don't even know how to explain this to you. I don't even know if I should, because somebody's going to look at me like, I knew. <laughs> <laughs> but this is the truth. I just had the strongest sense of presence behind me, like there. I am trying to wake up. Like all I could remember internally was a fighting to wake up. Who? Who is? I couldn't wake up. Woke up in the morning. I was like, I was reflecting back on my sleep, which I don't usually do. I was like, okay, God. All I all I knew was, I felt a dramatic sense of relief and assurance. That's what I felt. You are a shield about me. You are my rear God. You have my back. And I, God wants us to remain confident because when we're confident, we are active in the, in the pursuing of the plans and purposes that God has for us. He doesn't want us derailed by fear. He wants us confident, and he will minister to us in unique ways to assure us that we are his and his main endeavor is to assure you that no matter what you are going through negative or positive because it doesn't matter he's there and James 1 James says this count it all joy my brothers when you fall into various kinds of trials and then later he says don't doubt the goodness of God and if you're struggling with doubt what should you do Here's what James says, if anyone lacks wisdom in their struggle, if their confidence has been shaken, let him ask God for wisdom. Let him ask. And God says, I will liberally give you what you need in that circumstance in your life so that you can remain confident. I thought of a, a series of sayings I heard a few years back in light of this text. Here's what it says. It says, God brought me here, whatever the circumstance is. God is with me here. God will change me here. And one day God will get me out of here. God brought me here. He's with me here. He will change me here. And one day he will get me out of here. And folks, that's this psalm. That's the experience of David as he struggles. And he he calls us to focus on remembering our identity. And he calls us to rest profoundly in the faithfulness of God. Listen to what he says. In response to this, you are my glory. You're the lifter of my head. You bestow glory on me. I'm your child. That's exciting truth that should so enhance the life of everyone who has trusted Christ. He says, to you, Lord, I cry aloud. I shout. I raise my voice. And you answer me from your holy hill. This is beautiful. The holy hill is the place where God manifests himself to the people of Israel. It's also the place where Abraham encountered God with his son. On his holy hill, God showed favor. And from that holy hill, he sent his son. Who would stand in the temple and proclaim himself as your salvation. The very presence of God with us. I want you to think on this with me. How do I know if I'm really resting in God? You ever wrestle with that? How do I know if, I'm my, if I am God confident? How do I know? Here's the way David says it. I will call to God and he will answer me from his holy hill. That's one way. What happens after that, David? After God has assured you of his presence, has spoken into your life by his spirit, has shed his love abroad or in a fresh way, brought you to tears because of the gospel. Has that happened to you? where you're, you're meditating on the truth of Christ. Sometimes in sermon preparation, it's just meditating or thinking or, or in certain circumstances of life, you're, you're just conscious in a fresh way of the unbelievable, undeserved goodness of God for a sinner like you. I, I've just had times in my car where it just comes over me and it's just like, that is amazing. The tears of joy flow. David is saying, I I just I have this experience of God the result of this experience of God in distress is what? In verse 5, he says, I lay down and sleep. You ever had that circumstance that was keeping you awake? David says, I lay down and sleep. I wake and get out of bed. I'm not disabled by fear. I awake and the Lord sustains me. And folks, that is only the experience of obedient Christians who have taken up the shield and are advancing the cause of Christ. Otherwise, you are vulnerable to fear. Disobedience will always kill confidence, always. A lack of doing what God has called you to do will always kill confidence. And what it will also do is kill the sense that God is a shield about me, that He is the lifter of my head, that He bestows glory on me. I mean, I, I, I thought of Stephen in Acts 6. When Stephen began to declare the gospel of Christ in the face of an assault that would cost him his life, what did they see on Stephen? They saw the glory of God coming over Stephen, a, a sense of boldness and confidence from the one who bestows glory. Wait. Their rejection of Stephen in no way altered his perception of his identity in God. No way. And even though the stones were hitting, God was a shield around him. That is an amazing thing. I encourage you this morning, step out into a place where you need a shield. If you're honkered down in your spiritual house, you don't even, you don't even you don't need these. Well, you do need them. You just don't know it. Okay? But you're not experiencing them. It's only when you begin to step out and say, God, in faith, I am going to prosecute the Christian life in this world for your glory. And I don't care what people think. When you do that, the sense of God's glory... The sense that he has a shield around me. As Alan Peggy said, we go to China, we feel bulletproof. Why? Not because we think we'll always get out, but because God called us there, and he's with us there, and he's going to grow us there, and one day he will get us out of here. God wants us to rest in his faithfulness. And so David says to the Lord, I will cry aloud. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear the tens of thousands drawn up against me on every side. Now, what is that referring to? It's referring to the multiplying of enemies coming after him from Absalom. And David says, I, look, I, if I get the right God perspective, I'm okay with that. I can, I can live with that. I can be confident in that. If it's the end of my life in God's plan and timing, I'm good with that. I can lay down and sleep. That blows my mind. You find David doing that a number of times through his life with Saul. Remember when Saul's chasing him? Where's David? He's in the cave asleep. He wakes up and finds that Saul's at the front. What is he doing here? There's a sense in which David, in that place of God's providence, in the place of obedience before God, he is unbelievably confident. But this situation, years later, shakes him. That's my experience. I will not fear for tens of thousands drawn up on every side. I want you to think of the last circumstance in your life that caused fear, that kind of shook your faith. How did you respond? Did you trust the one who was for you? Did you trust the one who can do all things? You might have to say, okay, honestly, no, I panicked at first. But then I, I kind of got perspective back. But folks, listen, if you're beating yourself up because you lost perspective, I don't know how you read the psalm and not realize that was David. And that experience, the whole flow of that experience is recorded so that I could deal with my trouble when I respond improperly to it. On July 3rd, I was out with a friend fishing in the ocean. We were 32 miles out in 140 feet of water, and we hit something. And I was like, engine shut down. I was like, it's like, pause. Like, okay, Andy, what, what just happened? Because the boat's not running anymore. <laughs> and so it turned out we had, uh, we had blown the drive shaft, broke three mounts on the motor, and uh, we're effectively running a on one engine that could go six knots, six miles an hour. We were 30-some miles out. You could do the calculation for how long the ride home is. My, my initial response was not, God, you are so good. I can't wait to see how you resolve this situation. Maybe my son-in-law will show up in the Coast Guard helicopter and rescue us. I'll get that ride, okay? My first response was like, holy cow. Like, what if the other engine goes? That was my response, because that's logical. Fear kind of came over. My reorientation happened when I did this. I thought about who I was with. The son of the guy that was the captain that day. Uh, is a diesel mechanic. Not that he had his tools with him, but he's a diesel mechanic. Somehow that helped me, okay? (laughs) I'm pretty easy. And secondly, I thought, you know what, Andy's really, the guy that took me out today is really capable. I wouldn't be out here with him. Now, here's something I didn't know. Because he said, well, we'll just have to go back slow. And I was like, all right, cool. We'll we'll be okay, right? (laughs) I didn't know this, but I found out later because he was like totally chill. And I was like, so we just wrecked, $7,000 was the damage to the boat, okay? All I can think is, when the shaft of the engine breaks, what happens if it goes through the hull in 140 feet of water? How fast can someone get out there? Which that creates a little anxiety. I found out talking to him later in that week that he said, oh, we have, oh if that happened, I didn't ask, he said, oh, if that happened, we have a, it's called a life, what's it called? What's the word? That's a raft, but it's like, it's a survival vessel. That's what it's called. You throw it on the water, you pull the rib cord, it inflates and it holds six people. There were five of us on the boat. If I knew that, why do not you tell me that when we had the problem, I would have been like, fine. You know, his capacities were some comfort knowing that that life vessel was there would have been great comfort. And folks, look, we all in our lives have things that break, things it happens in life and God is through Jesus our life vessel he is there to ensure that his purposes in your life are accomplished for his glory I thought of this text in light of Jesus and I thought this question did Jesus face fear that's an uncomfortable question because he's my savior and God But the answer is what? Absolutely. John 12, now is my soul deeply troubled. Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass. Fear. Then he says, shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? And he says, no, for this hour, I came into this world. Now, folks, here's what's cool. Your greatest fear and everything you deserve from a holy God in terms of your sinfulness was entered into by Christ. He took the judgment that you deserve and that I deserve. He did not escape from the trouble. He went through it for our benefit. And he took your greatest fear and bore it on the cross, death itself. But in that death, He paid the full price for your sin so that all of your failures and all of your lack of confidence and all of your doubt could be forgiven because it was born on the shoulders of our Savior who is for us salvation. And David says, God, say to my soul, I am your salvation. And folks, that's who Jesus is. So every fear that I have in this life that pertains to the temporary realm needs to be seen in the big picture. And if all that's filling up the screen of my life is my problem, I need to introduce God who brings solutions so that I can walk in confidence in the God who made me, who came to bear my sin, who rose on the third day to defeat my greatest fear, because my greatest fear out on the boat the other day was I could die. If something really went bad, I could die. I don't want that to happen. Jesus took that for me. And he took it for you. And he offers life to you, eternal life to you as a gift. So that you can live with confidence that even in death or life, you can do everything that God has called you to do for his glory. So this morning, what is your fear? What is the the nagging issue that you don't see getting resolved? that may be today debilitating you or keeping you in bed in the morning. You just simply don't want anybody to know because we don't admit things like that. And I'm going to encourage you to go admit it to someone and go find Jesus with someone. The end of this text, look at verse 7 and 8. David says, Arise, O Lord, deliver me. That is, save me. Save me, rescue me. This is gospel terminology. Strike all my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. So that is not appropriate. That's uncomfortable. Is David asking God to destroy his enemies? Yep. Yep. And what is David saying? David is saying, God, justice belongs to you. And all the things that trouble you in your life, that cause you to fear and doubt the goodness of God, need to be seen in the perspective of a God who one day will come And who will judge righteously? And has already done so for every believer in his son, Jesus Christ. And the only reason that I don't get a broken jaw and what I deserve from God is because the jaw of Christ symbolically was broken for me. He was betrayed like David was for me. And he was pursued and killed for me. And the only reason that I can have confidence is because I don't have to face the consequences of my sin because Christ already did. And at six years old, by simple faith, I profess faith in that and have repeatedly professed faith in that through my life. And folks, that is what gives us confidence. Father, this morning...